Let's pray together. Father, that's our prayer, that our heart would want nothing else but you. We pray, God, as we go into this new year, that you'd give us a heart that beats after the things that your heart beats for, that you'd give us a mindset that allows us to be renewed in your presence and in our relationship with you. Father, I pray that we would do business with the sin in our life, even today, that you'd allow us to find freedom, Jesus, in you, that you would renew us, refresh us. And Father, I pray that our attention and our focus would go to you. I pray, God, as we open your word today, that you'd speak to every single person that's with us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Good to see you. You are here on New Year's Day weekend. So congratulations, you're at church. You have started the year off right. And as we go into the year 2022, you have so much potential. And God, I believe, wants to use every single one of us for so many different things. But it's not how you start the race, it's how you finish. Those words actually still haunt me because when I was in high school, I was a cross-country runner. And if you don't know anything about cross-country, it is a three-mile running race that we would run all around our high schools or in the hills or everywhere else uh, to compete against other high schools. Here's a picture of me in high school uh, running cross-country. Nice legs, huh? That is a lot of leg right there. Uh, but I was a cross-country runner in high school. We can put that picture away forever. Thank you. Uh, but I was a cross-country runner in high school, and I was really excited for my junior year. Because at that point, I was running like 18 minutes in the race. So for about three miles, it was six-minute miles, I was going really fast. And so I was preparing the summer before my junior year to be on the varsity team. And so I trained up in the mountains. I got together with all the guys, and I was excited. So the first race of the year, I'm running, and I feel this pain on the side of my body. And I'm like, what is this? I've never felt this before. And the pain after the race, it didn't stop. It lasted with me for two, three, four days more. And finally, I go to the coach. And I'm like, coach, it hurts when I run. It hurts when I walk and everything else. The coach says, go see the trainer. So I go to see the trainer, and it's beyond what the trainer's understanding is. So the, the trainer says, you got to go see a physical therapist. So I go see the physical therapist, and he says, hmm, I think that you have a torn hip flexor. I say, what's a hip flexor? I don't know what that is. And he started to explain it to me. And I said, well, that's fine. How fast can you get me back up running again? He said, well, it'll probably be mm, about four to five weeks. I started thinking to myself, that's, that's almost my whole cross-country season. Is there anything you could do to make it faster? He said, well, I could probably get it done in about four weeks if you follow through, go through physical therapy and everything else. So I'm going to physical therapy. I'm trying to get recovered for the last race of the year. It was league finals. And I wanted cross-country glory in high school. And so I went into my last race of the year after being injured and trying to train and everything else, thinking to myself, I am going to run as fast as I possibly can for as long as I possibly can. I don't care how bad this hurts. I am going to win this race. So sure enough, the day of the race comes, and I go up to the starting line. Now, now normally for long-distance races, usually start at the starting line. You're just kind of standing there, getting ready to go, getting psyched up. Well, for this day, 
I'm like, I'm going to run faster than I've ever run before. So I actually get down into a sprinter's stance. I bend myself all the way over in my little high school shorts, and I'm ready to go. Now, no one else on the line is doing this. Like, I am the only one bent over thinking that I'm going to sprint as hard as I possibly can. And sure enough, the gun goes off, and I take off running. I am running so fast, I am sprinting. I remember seeing my dad on the side of the track, and he looks at me, and he goes, slow down. But I'm like, I didn't care. I was like, I am going to win this race. I don't even care. So I am sprinting as hard as I possibly can. And for the first 30 seconds, I was winning that race. But after about 30 seconds, my sprint turned into a run. And a little while longer, my run turned into a jog. My jog turned into a walk. And about the mile and a half mark, I wanted to curl up in a ball and cry home to mama. But I kept running. I finished that race. Now, it was probably my worst time in all of my cross-country career. Why? Because I didn't pace myself. I didn't go out thinking about the finish line. I just thought about going out hard and going out strong. And that's a problem, isn't it, for all of us? We've got to understand that this race of life, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And as we learned last week, we started to study all about King Saul. He was the first king of Israel, and he starts so strong. I mean, he comes up, and he is a humble king, and he has provided this amazing opportunity. He's led by the Spirit of the Lord, and God is blessing him with victory, and he's giving all the credit back to God. He's listening to Samuel the prophet, and he's following through. But what we find is on this race, he quickly gets tripped up. He quickly falls off that path, and that journey. The Philistines march against the Israelites. And the Bible says it was a little bit intimidating. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse number 5. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. So here's King Saul with his army. And he's looking at all these Philistines. And they are like the sands of the seashore. There are so many of them. And the Philistines were well armored. They had swords, they had chariots, and everything else. Now the Israelites, they were not that. They were like a ragtag group of warriors. They didn't have any swords. In fact, there were only two swords to be found in the whole Israelite army. Saul had one, and his son Jonathan had the other one. Everyone else just had farm equipment and everything. So here he is, standing on the other hillside, looking at this other army. And his soldiers start to get a little scared. They start running home to mama at this point. They start hiding in the caves. Now Saul, I'm sure, was waiting for William Wallace to ride in on his horse. And for William to say, sons of Israel. That's the worst Scottish accent ever. But he's waiting, right, for William Wallace to show up, but he's not coming. And so here he is with all of his army, and he knows, man, there's nothing that I can do to keep them all together. So I've got to do something. So I know when we offer sacrifices to God, it just charges the army up. But here's the problem. Samuel 
was a little bit late. He was supposed to come in about seven days, and he was a little late. Now, Saul knew that it wasn't his responsibility to offer sacrifices, but he starts thinking, I'm filled with the Spirit of the Lord. I've prophesied before. Sure, I can offer these sacrifices. So sure enough, Saul offers these sacrifices to God. And wouldn't you know it, Samuel the prophet arrives in just that moment. At first, Saul offers some lame excuses. Then after he's done, here's what Samuel says to him in verse 13. He says, you acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So the last words that Samuel had given before this was you've got to fear and follow the Lord, Saul. If you're gonna see God's hand of blessing flow, you gotta follow him. But Saul didn't keep up his end of the bargain. You see, Saul disobeyed what the Lord had told him to do. And what happens here is what we say a lot of times. He has what's called partial obedience. What we say around sagebrush is partial obedience is still disobedience. Why? Because God wants all of us. He doesn't want half of our hearts. He wants all of us. And when you follow Jesus, you can't mess with sin. Why? Because sin puts distance between us and God. It's like having a relationship with your wife or your kids. When you do something that offends them, something that hurts their feelings, there's this distance that happens in your relationship. You feel disconnected from the other person, right? Because you know that there's something that has to be done to make this relationship right. And so that's what sin does. It puts distance between us and God. And from then forward for Saul, every time he inquires of the Lord, he gets the silent treatment. Now, I am probably the most talkative person that you've ever met. Like, I hate the silent treatment. I can't stand it when people won't talk to me in return, whether it's with my wife or my kids or anything else. I hate the silent treatment. Now, here with Saul, God gives him the silent treatment. God's not speaking to him. And when we get the silent treatment, usually that's a sign that the relationship is broken and we need to do some work. Now, I'm not advocating the silent treatment by any means, okay, as a way to work this out. But usually I know that I've got to work things out when the other person is quiet with me. And that's what's happening to Saul. There's this distance between him and God. And unfortunately, it only gets worse. That Philistine army is like they, the Israelites are delivered from it, but it's not through Saul. It's through his son, Jonathan. Because there's this distance between Saul and God in this moment. Well, God wants to give Saul a second chance. That's what I love about God, right? He always gives us a second chance. And so he's about to give Saul a second chance. You see, because there's the Amalekites. The Amalekites were ancient adversaries for the Jewish people. In fact, when the Israelites had come out of Egypt, this is the first people group to attack them. And so God says, write this down on a scroll because they will now be under divine judgment forever for attacking the Israelites. So the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and he says, hey, 
I want you to go, this is what God wants you to do, I want you to go and fight against the Amalekites, and I want you to destroy them. Well, unfortunately, Saul as well, he doesn't obey all the way. He only obeys partially, and we find this grieves both God and Samuel. Here's what it says in chapter 15, verse number 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all night. I think this is one of the most saddest passages in all of scripture. Why? Because we have God being grieved in this moment. Now, I don't want to make God into a human being like you and me, but we find in the Bible there's a couple situations where God is grieved. And it's usually because we choose to follow our own plan rather than his plan. See, God has a plan in our life. He wants to bless us. He wants to hold us. He wants to be in a close relationship with us. But when we go against him, when we try to go our own way, it grieves the Lord. He doesn't want us to fall into that. Samuel as well is also grieved. The Bible says that he stays up all night crying out, to the Lord over King Saul. So the next morning, Samuel decides to do something. So it says in verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There, he has set up a monument in his own honor. Not good. And has turned and gone down to Gilgal. So here's Samuel, right? He goes to check on Saul and what's happened. And this messenger says to him, no, no, Saul is actually gone and he built a monument to himself. I mean, how ridiculous is this? I mean, Saul knows that he doesn't have the victory in and of himself. He knows that God has interceded. But who is he now celebrating? He's celebrating himself. He's so self-centered in this moment. Before, at the very beginning, he celebrated how God had rescued them. But now, he's all about himself. No one likes a narcissist, right? You don't like going around a person who's just full of themselves. All they talk about themselves all the time. Man, it's just ridiculous. And that's exactly where Saul is. Now, how would you react to this situation if you were Samuel? I mean, how would you react if it was me I would be angry. I mean, my blood would be boiling inside of me. And that's exactly where Samuel is. So Samuel goes to see Saul and look at the response. In verse number 13, it says this. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Oh my. He's so fake in this moment. And Samuel knows it. So Samuel asks him a few more probing questions. And the whole time, Saul is just shining him on. He's just gaslighting him the whole time. And finally, Samuel is like, enough is enough. The Lord told me last night just how disobedient you were. That you didn't follow through. And because of that, the Lord is going to take your kingdom away. Now this gets Saul's attention. So Saul gets like very serious and he gets on his knees and he starts begging for forgiveness and he tries to figure it out, but it's too late. It's too late in this moment. So Samuel gets up and gets ready to leave and that's when something strange 
happens. It says this. It says this. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Now, this is strange because it's almost like a Greek tragedy here, right? Samuel's getting ready to leave, and Saul reaches over, and he grabs the hem of Samuel's garment, and it tears away. And it's at that moment, I'm sure, that Samuel gave him the evil eye, looks back at him, and he says, just as this garment was torn, your kingdom is going to be taken away from you. And that gets, obviously, Saul's attention. And he says that the kingdom is going to be given to someone else, a person who has a heart from God. One of your neighbors, somebody who's close to here, is going to be given your whole entire kingdom. Now, you would think that this would get Saul's attention and this would change him. But his response is very curious. Here's what Saul replies in verse 30. Saul replied and said, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. That's curious to me because what I see in this verse is partial obedience again. Here he is, right, saying, God forgive me, but... Now, anytime you ever apologize to another person, never, never include the words but, okay? Just get that but out of the statement, okay? Because it's bad. Anytime we say, yeah, I'm sorry for what I did, but, you know, you should probably not be so concerned about the dishes anyway, you know? Anytime we say, hey, I'm sorry I'm late for work, but you shouldn't micromanage me as a boss. Anytime we say, you know, man, I'm sorry that you misbehaved, kids, and I got angry, but you should probably do what we ask you to do. It's never a sincere apology. And that's exactly where Saul is at. He's insincere. And what is he more concerned with? Saul is more concerned with what he appears on the outside. He's more concerned with how the Israelites view him. So he says, hey, I know I did something wrong, but please, still show up. Come honor me and honor the Lord with me, like so that I can be seen by all the people. Let's not, you know, let's keep this whole I'm not going to be the king thing between you and me, Samuel. Let's appear like we still got it all together. What's Samuel going to do in this situation? Well, he goes on and he worships the Lord with Saul but it breaks their relationship as well. Here's what it says at the very end of that chapter. It says, until the day that Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again. Though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. So Samuel's decided he's never going to see Saul again. And so Samuel sits kind of in this state of mourning for a while. And after a bit, God comes to him and says, hey, how long are you going to really mourn for Saul? It's time for us to find a new king in Israel. It's time to find that person who has a heart to please and to serve me. So God sends Samuel to the town of Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, who is from the tribe of Judah, to find the next king. 
And sure enough, he goes over to Jesse's house. And as they're sitting in Jesse's house, Jesse lines up all of his sons before Samuel. And the Bible speaks very clearly to Samuel in this moment. Here's what God says in verse number 7 of chapter 16. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. What's he saying there? He's saying, hey, the last time the Israelites did this, they got the guy who looked the part. They got the guy who was head and shoulders above the crowd. The guy who seemed like on the outside was all together. But God says, I'm looking for something different. Someone who may not have it all together on the outside, but they have a heart to serve me. So as Samuel's looking over all these sons of Jesse, he's not seeing the next king. So he looks to Jesse and he says, hey, is there anybody else? I mean, do you have any more sons? And sure enough, Jesse says, well, there, there's, there's, there's the last of them, the youngest of my kids, but he's out like shepherding the sheep. He's outside right now. Well, Samuel says, I'll wait. So they go out into the countryside. They find David and they bring him back. Here comes David. I mean, he is covered and messy from caring for all these sheep. And God says, that's the one. That's the one who has a heart to please me. Anoint this guy as the next king of Israel. And so here's what Samuel does in verse 13. It says, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. So Samuel goes back home and David experiences again being filled by the spirit of the Lord. And what we find out in the next verse is that the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul. It goes away from Saul. At one time, Saul experienced the pleasure and the power of knowing and being in relationship with God. But now that spirit has departed. Now that spirit has left him behind. And so it leaves him in kind of an emotional state. And we see some emotions start to well up inside of Saul. First, we see that he is afraid. He's scared. So we find that the Philistines march out against them, and there's this champion named Goliath who stands in front of them. Now, the person who was supposed to go into battle was usually the king, because the king was the warrior. But Samuel is scared to death. He's afraid. Finally, they're delivered by David. And the people get caught up in David. They get really excited. And so they start sharing that Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So he moves from being afraid to really jealous. He's really jealous of David and all the accomplishments that he does. And then from there, he kind of moves into the state of paranoia. Because he sees that the Lord is with David, but the Lord is no longer with him. And he actually moves from paranoia into being aggressive. In his anger and when he gets upset, when he gets really emotional, he does these terrible things. In fact, this one time David is playing the harp to soothe Saul. And while he's trying to soothe Saul, Saul grabs a spear and he throws it at David to try to pin him against the wall. We find that this guy is in a rough spot. Because at one time he experienced this closeness to God and now that's departed. 
And now he spirals out of control and he becomes an emotional basket case. And I have to be honest with you folks, I've, I've seen this before as a pastor. I've seen people at one time who were so close to God. I mean, they were on fire for God. They couldn't get enough of going to church and spending time alone with the Lord. And man, they were just sharing Jesus with everyone. But slowly but surely, sin crept into their life. They started picking and choosing what they would obey and what they wouldn't obey in the Bible. They settled for that partial obedience. So at times they would read the Bible, but they would also sleep around with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. At times they would, you know, talk the talk and show up to church, but every time they got home, they were just angry and upset. They'd post verses online on Facebook or social media, but those verses would be right next to pictures of them partying it up, doing crazy things. And what we see is when you move away from God, it begins to impact you emotionally, just like it did King Saul. You see, because when we get away from the Lord, when there's distance between us and God, we're more fearful. We start thinking that this could be the end of us. We get fearful of other people. We also get a little bit paranoid. We think people are, might be out to get us, or people might be talking about us, or we be, get consumed with things that are going on. We get jealous, right? Every time we go on social media and we're scrolling through endlessly, we're jealous of the experiences that other people are having. That leads us sometimes when we get angry to get really aggressive with others. Why? It's because God has this indicator light. Much like driving a car, you know, you have those indicator lights that go off that come out with our emotions. That show us we need to deal with our own relationship with God. And when left untreated, it only gets worse. And unfortunately for Saul, it only got worse. Because not only was he getting emotional, but he starts actually trying to kill King David. He starts trying to search him out all throughout the land. But God protected David in crazy ways. He's protected first by Jonathan, the king's own son. And then he's protected by the high priest, uh, Ahimelech who's the high priest. And actually, when he protects him, he's actually killed along with his whole family for protecting David. He's protected by Achish, who is like the leader of like the Philistines. He's a Philistine ruler, the enemies of the Israelites who protects David. He's also protected by Samuel, the prophet as well. Why? Because God was with David. God was looking for a person who loved him with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. And he found that in David. And because of that, God's hand was with David. And David was a man of honor. In fact, David had two opportunities to kill King Saul. There was one time when Saul was in a cave relieving himself. Which I, the Bible's so graphic. But he's going to the bathroom, basically. And David sneaks up and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Another time, Saul is sleeping with his bodyguards and David sneaks in and steals his spear and steals his water jug. See, that's who David was. He was a man of honor in the midst of that. And unfortunately for Saul, there was no honor to be found. In fact, the end of Saul's life, it ends tragically. Saul winds up on Mount Gilboa fighting the Philistine army. And one by one, Saul's sons die in battle. Finally, Saul is mortally wounded. 
He knows that he's going to die. So he looks at his armor bearer, scared of what the Philistines might do, how they might torture him, how they might make sport of him. So he looks to his armor bearer and he says, hey, I want you to pull out your sword and I want you to kill me right now in this moment. But his armor bearer had more honor than King Saul. The armor bearer refused to do it. So Saul pulls out his own sword and he falls on his sword and he tries on his own to die by suicide. See, he tries to take his own life in this moment. It's such a tragedy. It leaves you feeling so rotten. Why? Because we all see the potential that Saul had. Had he followed God, had he walked in obedience, God would have blessed him with a kingdom that would have lasted. But instead, he refuses to walk with God. He tries to go his own way, and he lives a life that's self-centered. Again, friend, it's not how you start the race, it's how you finish the race. And Saul didn't finish the race well. What about us? My hope is that we would understand the amazing opportunity that God has given us. That we would understand that God wants to have a relationship with us. That God wants to be close to us. That God has forgiven all those wrong things that we've ever done through Jesus. He wants to be near us. And I believe he has a wonderful plan for our life. That plan, though, is hijacked when we fall into sin. So we've got to deal with our sin because our sin puts distance between us and God. We can't settle for partial obedience. We've got to be fully devoted to him as we go into this new year. And then we've got to run this race. Now, when I was in high school, I didn't really understand pacing myself. But as I got older, I learned the value of it. And in 2005, I actually ran my first marathon, the Marine Corps Marathon in Washington, D.C. Now, to run a marathon, it's 26.2 miles. If you try to sprint the whole thing, you are going to die, okay? So I learned the value of pacing myself. And sure enough, I got to mile 20 and mile 23 and then mile 24 and about mile 25. I could hear the roar of the crowd cheering for people. And in Washington, D.C., you finish in the Arlington Cemetery and that monument of Iwo Jima where those soldiers stood up the flag on that statue. That's where you finish. And you get to hear the roar of the crowd as you're coming to the finish line. And that, folks, is how I imagine it's going to be one day in heaven. God cheering us on. Everybody who's gone before us cheering us on as well because we made it. We followed the Lord and we obeyed him. We lived for him till the very end with all of our heart and with all of our souls. What I love about God is he's not looking at your outward appearance. Other people will look at you and they'll judge you by your gifts, your talents and your abilities, but God doesn't. You might hear voices in your head that you're not tall enough, you're not brave enough, you're not wise enough, you might not even be smart enough. But friend, I want you to hear me say this. God says, you are enough. And he wants you as a part of his team. And when you join him in relationship with him, he uses you to do far more than you could ever ask, dream, or imagine. My hope and my prayer for all of our church is that we would find our true potential in 2022 and that we would finish this race well. That's my prayer for all of us. Let's pray together now. God, thank you so much for this message.
And Lord, it's not a message from me. It's a message straight from your word. So Lord, I pray that you would take this message and use it to change people's hearts. I pray God for the ones who are here with us who might be messing around with sin. That Lord, today might be the day that they confess it, that they get it right, that they would understand that sin puts distance between us and you. So God, today I pray that they do that hard work of giving their very heart and their soul back to you. I pray God that they'd get back in the right place with you. That Lord, they wouldn't no longer sit in silence, but God, they would do something about their broken relationship with you. I pray God that you'd make people whole again, maybe through this message and through the work of your Holy Spirit. And I pray maybe even now in this moment that you'd lead people towards decisions for you. I ask this in Jesus' name.